Yes, I'm Alfred Addisk, and this is Financial Survival, brought to you by Discount Gold and Silver at 1-800-375-4188. For all your gold and silver coin needs, my, my guest is James. Oh, my God, I'm getting old to the point where I can't hardly remember things like Corbett, Corbett. anymore. It's, <laughs> ah, it's, ah, it's, one, it's, it's one of those – it's not exactly a – a senior moment, because a senior moment, I think, lasts a little longer. But we do have these little moments. We do have these little interludes when uh, I wind up groping for, especially names. I'm getting to the point where I may not remember my own name one of these days. <laughs> um, we've got an article here from Breitbart News. And the headline is, Trump, quote, I have determined that it's time to officially recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. What's going on here, James? Is Trump, is he looking for trouble? Are he and Israel looking to revive the war in the Middle East? It seems to be dying in Syria and so on. Are they, are they trying to make trouble, or do they think they have so much power right now they can get away with this? And is it dangerous, or is it just PR? Is this a significant change, or is it... Uh, much ado about nothing. Well, I truly can't come up with an explanation or interpretation of this that is anything other than stirring the pot. I mean, this is a gigantic finger in the eye of every player in the Middle East, except for Israel and its closest, staunchest allies. And it's, uh, there's no geopolitical explanation for this, why this had to be done right now, or, you know, what, 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 greater good this is going to serve and i don't think there's even particularly a greater good being served narrative that's being pumped along with this it's just well it's time you know might as well acknowledge it now i I just i can't even comprehend this even if you were an israeli first or jewish supremacist whatever i can't understand why this would be a politically viable or laudable move in any sense so i i mean this is just clearly i think pandering to the Israel lobby and certain evangelical crowd in the U.S. electorate. I guess that's the only political interpretation I can come on with this. And yes, I think it's going to have ramifications because obviously this is going to further stoke and inflame tensions in the Middle East. There's no way that uh, this is not going to have political ramifications. Where do we think? Where do you think the ramifications will be most powerful? Are we going to? We're going to worry about Syria. We're going to worry about Saudi Arabia. I don't think Saudi Arabia is concerned about this. What about Iran? Is this going to draw Iran and force them to do something? Well, I, I think that has to be one of the ramifications of this. One of the consequences. I mean, right on Israel's doorstep, of course, you have Hezbollah with Lebanon and all of the craziness playing out there between uh, Lebanon and Saudi Arabia right now has to do with Saudi Arabia and its growing relationship with Israel. So, for example, you get the Daily Star out of Beirut with its front page story. No offense, Mr. President, Jerusalem is the capital of Palestine. And it's a big front, full page, front page uh, story. Um, and this is the way this is going to be seen and interpreted by uh, certainly in Lebanon. Uh, certainly Iran has to be looking at this. And also, I mean, a related story of sorts. Back on the 1st of December, Israel was launching airstrikes against Syria. Uh, yep. um, a supposed alleged military base out on the outskirts of Damascus or outside of Damascus um, that supposedly, allegedly, according to a BBC anonymous source that won't go on the record, uh, it was being used to house uh, some sort of Iranian military presence in Syria. So 
uh, Israel bombed it to smithereens. Um, These kinds of major moves are happening right now. And in the middle of this, you have the supposed arbiter of the Israel-Palestine dispute, the U.S., the, the country that is supposedly arbitrating this dispute, coming in and unilaterally deciding, okay, let's completely change the, the diplomatic status quo here for no well-defined reason. Uh, that's insanity. That's it's geopolitical insanity. And the Iranians have to read the writing on the wall and have to know that, I mean, there is no doubt that there has... The the U.S.-Israel relationship has always been very close, but probably has never been closer than what it is rep- represented here with the Trump administration. And that can only mean green light go ahead um, for some attack on Iran at some point. Or that seems to be the game plan that's coming into view. And that, I mean, that Iran has to be reading the writing on the wall with this. There are people I mean, in the sorry, United States. I should say, just, just uh, I don't want to exclude the actual, the Palestinian people from this discussion because obviously that is that is where this affects right uh, at home this is uh, issue number one but i'm just saying the larger geopolitical ramifications of this ultimately iran has to be looking at this there are people in the united states who believe they conspiracy theorists who believe that israel controls congress and they are passing laws all the time not just because we like israel but because we're ordered by israel to pass these laws but there are also people in Israel who believe that the, the Israeli government is the servant of the, of the U.S. government. And they're complaining that they are, their government is being run by ours. Which government is, which government is running uh, the United States? Which government is running Israel? How close is the, is the relationship just one of a kind of... I don't know, mutual admiration, and I'm not even sure that that's, you can say that anybody admires anyone in this situation, but is there real control or is there merely persuasion and influence? Yeah, which tail is wagging which dog? Um, yeah, that's... Yeah. Yeah. It's, a, it's a good question because I, I, I think, I mean, the way to look at this, I think, isn't in terms of the nation-state idea that we've been presented with. It isn't about that. It's about I agree the with you. United States is a is the world monetary and military superpower and it is one hundred percent committed to Israel in the Middle East region. And with all that entails, including the billions and billions of dollars of aid directly and explicitly, but also everything else, covering up diplomatically at the UN, vetoing every resolution or every sanction against Israel for its illegal settlements and things like this, or uh, the the uh, nuclear ambiguity, the official policy of the United States not to acknowledge the fact that Israel has hundreds of nuclear weapons, undeclared nuclear weapons, and is not part of the uh, Nuclear Proliferation Treaty, making it a rogue state. All of these things are, are, are have to be seen as a, a package deal. This isn't the U.S. is wagging the Israel tail or the Israel tail is wagging the U.S. dog. It's that they are, in a sense, the, the, the oligarchs that control this are one and the same and part of the same clique and are obviously looking out for each other. So clearly, the Israel lobby in the U.S. and its power over Congress is, I think, indisputable and is not even really disputed by the people who advocate it for it. They, they just say that, that, well, that's a good thing because Israel is our, is our friend. Um, and on the flip side of that, Israel wouldn't be able to do what it does in the Middle East without that U.S. support and backing and and aid and everything else that comes along with it. So it's a package deal, and clearly that that package isn't being untied or un, unwound by the drain-the-swamp 
Trumper. This is uh, 100% going full forward with this relationship. And that, that has to be worrying because we know on the record, admittedly, the Israeli long-term game plan is the greater greater Israel project is what it what it's been referred to, which is to destabilize its bordering nations and, and uh, neighboring nations like like Syria has been specifically targeted by things like the Oded Yunon plan. We have to destabilize it. We have to get the sectarian violence going in these uh, Arab states and, and other bordering nations and uh, as a way of furthering Israeli interests in the region. And ultimately, it's, it goes back to the Brookings Institute and all these other think tanks in the U.S., but of course they have uh, Israeli-friendly um, people working for them who are also thinking about things like which path to Persia. Look that up. That's a document about how, basically, what's the best way to start the war with Iran. And that is on the game plan. That is in the cards. It's a long-term thing, and it's that's one of those things that... I just, I hate to come back to this so often, but it really is one of those things where that is a line in the sand. There's no going back. You can start some sort of thing in Syria and try it as a proxy war with forces fighting and what have you. But if you cross the line with Iran, that really does cross the fundamental line and now brings in the wrath of Russia and China and all of this. So I just don't like the way this is going. It's, it seems incomprehensible. It just seems unwise. I, somebody's got to have an ulterior motive on here because they can't be that dumb. I mean, this is not something that challenges the average person's intelligence. You've got to see this is going to be trouble. I'm wondering about, because do you think this has anything going after Iran? Saudi Arabia apparently wants to do that under any circumstances. They have a visceral dislike and I believe they've got one of them Sunni and the other one is Shiite. Um, does this have anything to do with reports that Iran has been supplying North Korea with weapons? I would In say in the context hmm. of the North Korean conflict, is somebody saying we gotta shut Iran down? Right, yeah. Well I would say those reports are probably more about um, being aimed at, against Iran than they are at North Korea. In fact, I was listening to an interesting interview, and I can't remember the citation at this point, so it's unfortunate. I believe it was on the Scott Horton show. One of his guests was talking about how um, the 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 speechwriter for the the infamous Axes of Evil speech during the Bush administration, uh, uh, David Frum, I believe, a Canadian, yay, um, uh, came up with that 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 phrase, that idea, um, or supposedly did at least wrote the speech, which ultimately became the Axis of Evil speech. And now we know, you know, North Korea and Iran and um, Iraq were the the Axis of Evil back there in two thousand two. And well, we took care of Iraq, so now it's time to get the other two. Um, the original idea for that speech, of course, did not originate with David Frum. It was from, I believe, Richard Pearl was what this uh, this guest was was talking about, and this is documented by various people. Richard Pearl, of course, being one of the neocons in the Bush cabal, and the original axis of evil idea was, of course, not Iran, Iraq, and North Korea. I mean, there's no, there's no even conceivable connection with that, and it doesn't make sense geopolitically, economically, in any way. Why throw in North Korea? It's so that it wasn't the original axis of evil, which was going to be Iran, Iraq, Syria, which is 
hello, it's quite obvious that is that is Israeli foreign policy. That is not U.S. That couldn't even remotely consider that as U.S. foreign policy. That is Israeli foreign policy. So they threw in North Korea as kind of the canard. Look, it's not about Israel. It's about it's about general U.S. foreign policy. And that I think so. Now we see the 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 North Korean conflict being used as another way of of trying to tie in essentially this. What I've talked about on my program recently is the the resistance block, however you want to form it, that's forming in opposition to the axis that formed around the takedown of Assad in Syria, where you had Saudi Arabia and Qatar and uh, and uh, the U.S. and Israel and Turkey all jumping in to to feed the flames and to um, fund and train and arm these terrorist insurgents and to even provide them in the case of Saudi and, and some of the other countries. Uh, that was that was the formation of some sort of. I don't know, Middle Eastern axis, whatever you want to call it. And in opposition to that, we have seen Lebanon and Iran and Syria and to some extent Iraq. And now even by proxy, China and Russia all being, if at any rate, thrown into each other's arms. I mean, they are actively actually collaborating yeah, and sharing intelligence now where they weren't before. So there, there yeah. is a formation of a kind of resistance block here. And North Korea is going to be one of those things where, hey, everybody, look, there's a crazy guy over there doing crazy stuff, and he's tied to Iran, which is tied into Lebanon, which is tied into everything else. So it just becomes a convenient way of, of kind of uh, moving, a, moving the, the chess pieces into whatever part of the board they want. Is the creation of this block, the bricks, as much as anything, there is more to it than the, just the bricks, but is the creation of this block... An accident, an unintended consequence of American meddling in foreign affairs, or did the people in government say we need it? We need a new and convincing threat, a, a group of nations that we can point to and say, "Oh my gosh, do you, you understand what I I'm do. saying?" I do. And I think you expressed it best um, just a, a few minutes ago, where you said, "Well, they can't be this dumb," and I think yeah. that's exactly the case with this. There is absolutely no way that the foreign policy planners and the think tankers and the people who do this for a living are suddenly taken by surprise. Oh, wow. So you, you mean when you delist uh, Iran from the SWIFT network and you put on these sanctions on, mm-hmm. on Russia and China and all of this, suddenly they're driven into each other's arms and start forming this, this geopolitical block against us? I never would have predicted. No, of course. This is, of course, a perfectly predictable result and conclusion from, from the premises that we've been given. And I th- the, the only question is, so what does that mean? Um, either it means they, they just don't care. I mean, it's just such a non-issue that there's this resistance block of some sort forming against them. Or that was the plan all along, in fact, that to, to create the, uh, the opposition. And I think that, that is ultimately my, my take on this. And in the BRIC case specifically, literally, factually, the term BRIC was invented by... Goldman Sachs. It comes from a Goldman really? Sachs white paper back in, I believe, 2001, um, written by Goldman Sachs chief economist who said, hey, look, Britain, uh, Brazil, Russia, India, and China, these are the emerging economies. They're expected to have such and such a share of global economic growth over the next decade. They have this kind of thing in common. They, sh- they should be treated as a block. And they, uh, the, they looked at that paper and said, okay, let's do it. So uh, it literally comes from Goldman Sachs. This is uh, completely on the cards. There's no way that foreign policy planners didn't see it. And I think this has been the concerted effort to create the, the narrative, the force, the boogeyman of the 21st century. If we create that boogeyman, how does this affect the new world order? 
I'm looking at the New World Order as they want to combine everyone together and get a single unified system. If they are creating an alternative system or allowing an alternative system to establish itself, doesn't does that threaten the New World Order, or is that a device by the New World Order to create a boogeyman that can be smashed down, and in the context of that smashing, we can create a single unified global government? I think that is one of the ways that this can unfold. Another way is to keep the world in some sort of perpetual warfare or some sort of state like that, because the Cold War era was an era of potential... Essentially, it was globalization into two competing camps. And you had the third world, which was the non-aligned world, um, that didn't quite fit in those cracks conveniently. But at any rate, the, the majority of the developed world was in one camp or another. And I think that might be part of the endgame of this. Perhaps the idea of a single unitary system is not sustainable. They know that you need some sort of conflict, you need something in there to keep the two sides buttressing each other, essentially, which is exactly how the two-party system works in the United States, for example. The Republicans and Democrats buttress each other. There can be no third viable third alternative because the, the two-party system is so entrenched, and that might be the vision of uh, politics in the future, a vision that was laid out as early ago, as, uh, or as early as 1993, back when um, Samuel P. Huntington published The Clash of Civilizations in Foreign Affairs and then developed that into his 1996 book, The Clash of Civilizations and the Remaking of World Order, talking about how the 21st century is going to be defined by this class of Western, uh, clash of Western and Islamic civilization. And lo and behold, here we are. I don't know. Is it? Uh, we'll have to talk about this after the break. We'll take a couple of commercials, and I'll be back with James Corbett from thecorbettreport.com. And we'll learn more about the clash of civilizations. Please stay tuned to Financial Survival. Hi, folks. I'm Alfred Addis here with James Corbett from thecorbettreport.com. Financial Survival. We were talking about the clash of civilizations. I'm sure you're aware that China is assembling, is putting together the the means of of purchasing crude oil from other countries, paying for it with yuan, and backing the payment with gold. Um, where if they want to take their yuan and trade it in for gold, they can do that. Um, this is not simply a matter of convenience. This is one of the reactions that we can expect from the BRICS, for example, because of the, uh, the United States government's attempts to regulate and, and uh, manipulate foreign countries. They are reacting and they're saying, we don't want any part of it, and they are attacking the petrodollar. And here's an article from Russia to Insider. The headline is, a goodbye petrodollar, Russia plans the first ever sale of yuan bonds. Okay, <clears throat> that's one thing that we know about. But Venezuela came out just lately, just in the last, just just this week, and announced that they were going to create a cryptocurrency that was would be backed by crude oil and a couple other uh, crude oil, uh, natural gas, if I understand correctly, liquid natural gas and gold. This is a second country, and in Venezuela is not as Venezuela goes. It's not true that as they go, so goes the world. But just the same, this is a second country coming up with a with a currency alternative that involves gold at least and crude oil 
and tries to get away from the U.S. dollar. Is this a coincidence or is this an idea whose time has come? Yes, well, it's at any rate a necessary uh, move from the point of view of countries that have found themselves in the crosshairs of the U.S. empire. And I I don't think they have a choice. Whether it's going to work or not or what will come of it, no no one can say. But at any rate, I don't think they have a lot of choice when it comes to this. And Venezuela, of course, in a particularly perilous economic situation, so they're throwing things at the wall and seeing what will stick. Uh, I don't think that's particularly surprising. Just to... Play, if not play the devil's advocate, at least put this Petro Yuan uh, in perspective. There is an interesting and thought-provoking post on Bloomberg, <laughs> and I know my audience is going to bristle at the idea of those words going together, but at any rate, Bloomberg has a good post up on China's push to trade oil in Yuan faces a key hurdle, and it talks about how Let's not let's not talk about this as if it's a done deal already and everything's already in place and this is the new Petro Yuan and here it is. No, this is still something that's developing and could develop in the future. But to put it in perspective, the actual international energy exchange on which people are supposedly in the near future going to be uh, doing oil futures trading priced in Yuan is still pending. In fact, the first test trades are scheduled to begin this weekend. So it, they still haven't, it's still not even actually functioning. And even after it is actually functioning, it's still a f- considerable way to go from that to actually having ver- vi- viable real markets working in the yuan because people are obviously very um, hesitant, and I think rightly so, to start doing great deals, a great amount of trade in yuan when there are such heavy capital restrictions and capital controls by the Chinese government. And and the Chinese government pegs to the dollar anyway, so or it has a free-floating peg or whatever they call it. Um, but at any rate, it is tied to the U.S. dollar, as is most of the currencies in the Middle East, um, where the obviously the, the, the key is if the, the countries in the Middle East start trading in petro yuan. That's something significant, but most of their currencies are tied to the dollar anyway. The vast majority of world transactions are in dollars. Um, most of the markets uh, by volume um, is, is in the U.S. Uh, just everything is centered around and constructed around the U.S. dollar system. That's not going to change easily, and it's certainly not going to change overnight. The petroyuan is at least a potential possibility now, but it's still a long way to go, at least uh, and not necessarily a long way in time, because no one knows what, what's going to happen tomorrow. But um, at any rate, there's still a lot of things that would have to change in order for the yuan to, to really function as a, as a replacement for the petrodollar. So I don't think this is a near-term thing we're talking about. It's just the potential that people are looking at right now. And that's that's really the important part of this. As you say, people are seeing the handwriting on the wall, whether it's the Chinese, whether it's the Venezuelans, whether it's a number of other countries that are thirsting for a way off the U.S. dollar grid that exists right now. But that's, I don't think most people have have a conception of just how pervasive that grid is in the financial and economic world that underlies all international transactions. Um, At this point, there is no alternative to the U.S. dollar fundamentally. We're only seeing the beginnings of the creation of something that could become a real competitor to the dollar. The axis of evil. If I understand correctly, the original countries that were declared to be components of the axis of evil, they had one common denominator. They didn't have any central banks that were dominated by the Rothschilds, and they did not rely on the U.S. dollar. 
one of the first things we did after we invaded Iraq, they had uh, is we flew in uh, pallet loads of hundred dollar bills and moved Iraq away from the Iraqi currency, which had been backed by gold, if I understand correctly, and into the fiat currency of U.S. dollars. And is that the reason we invaded? Is that what the excess of evil is all about? If you don't use U.S. dollars, are you deemed to be evil? Yes. I mean, in a word, yes. And, of course, yeah. that was part of what, what happened with Iraq and um, Hussein, who had started trading, who had started an oil burst denominated in euros rather than dollars. Um, and, in fact, I just dug it up recently for a recent episode of my Questions for Corbett series. I, I'll have to look up the reference again. But The Guardian had a an article. It was in, I believe, February of 2002, something like that, or 2003, I should say, um, right before the bombs started falling. That was something to the effect of, you know, that crazy, weird man, Saddam Hussein, has started pricing his oil in euros instead of dollars. What's he thinking? Why is he Why is he scared of the Americans or, or whatever? And of course, I mean, in retrospect, it's, uh, it's so obvious exactly what he was doing and why he was targeted and all of that. But I mean, that's a part of it. Absolutely, that's a part of it. And it's something I always... I pointed out a lot at the time, and I will continue to point out, one of the first things that these rebels did in Libya when they were overthrowing the oppressive tyrant Gaddafi, one of the very first things on their agenda, for some reason, was setting up a new central bank. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder why, you know? what? What's the point of that? Oh, it's because that is fundamentally what so much of this is about. And now we don't have to speculate about that. We have, even have from Hillary's emails, the email about how, yeah, the French were pretty mad at, uh, at Libya for wanting to start this gold dinar idea and make a new African currency that's uh, gold-centered rather than, you know, using the French uh, colonial... Uh, leftovers and uh, and relying so much on France, and that was part of the calculation that went into the Libyan overthrow. So it it certainly is. If there is a threat to American dollar hegemon, that will be met with military force. And which means that anyone who tries to fool around with this, I mean, I look at the, I'm inclined to view China's creation of a Petro One. Yuan, uh, that, that is additionally indirectly backed by gold, I see this is sufficient reason to go to war uh, from, the, from, the government, from the perspective of the government of the United States, assuming that this can catch fire and gain traction quickly. It might be the single biggest threat to the United States since uh, maybe the, the communist, uh, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Uh, so I see this as dangerous, and we see Venezuela coming out as they want to back their currency by get away from fiat. They're going to back their currency by crude oil, which, of, which they have a lot of, and also gold, which they don't have much, but some. And diamonds, um, I heard. All right, diamonds, yeah. But they're, they're giving us a currency that's backed by something tangible, even if it's corn cobs. Okay, we have a new corn cob currency out here. It's technically superior to a fiat dollar. You can redeem your new corn cob currency in corn cobs. You can't redeem the U.S. dollar in anything, at least not from the Federal Reserve and or the government of the United States. The way you redeem the U.S. dollar right now, especially if you're in a foreign country, is you take the dollars to the United States and you buy things like land and homes and buildings and businesses and whatever else from private citizens. The private people 
of the United States of America are the ones that are redeeming the paper dollars that are being issued by the government and or the Federal Reserve. It's like me calling, requiring you to make good on the checks I'm using to buy a new car, a new house, whatever. As long as you're the one who's held responsible, I can buy anything. So, I don't know, the world is changing and we do not, and on top of all of what we see or, or what we're beginning to see in the possibility of currencies mm -hmm. that are not pure fiat, yeah. now we have Bitcoin and yeah. the cryptocurrencies. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I think I, the fundamental thing that we should be keeping in mind with this whole conversation that we're being plunged into, whether we know it or not, is that this raises the fundamental point that I've been talking about for years and years and years at the Corporate Report that I think is more apt now than ever, and will be even more apt a few years from now, is the fundamental underlying point of this is that the economy, what really is the economy, and what really drives economic productivity is the people, and people transacting with each other. That is the real heart and the lifeblood of the economy, and that's implicit in these fiat systems where, suppose, I mean, theoretically, the way that what the, the dollar is really backed by is essentially, well, it's the IRS has the gun to your head and will be able to claw back a part of that. That's that's what underlies it. The, the, the tax isn't actually used to pay down the debt, of course, as we know. It's used to secure that debt. Look, we have this tax base, that we, the, the tax cattle that we can milk, and that's that's what it is. But ultimately what that is is saying we have a portion of all of this labor that's going on in the economy. That's what backs the dollar. That is the, the lifeblood of the dollar system. And we are just the monopolists on top of that. And we, we tell you, you have to pay your tribute to us in these dollars. So everyone needs the dollars. But once, if we can break that fundamental shackle and realize that transactions between individuals, between people is really the lifeblood of the economy, and we create the value of any monetary system, that opens up all sorts of possibilities, including the, the cryptocurrency world and everything else. But as long as we're stuck in that fiat mentality where uh, the money is just something that's created by the government and that's the government gives it its value. No, we give money its value. Until we realize that, we'll never be able to take the power back. You talk about the economy. Are you talking about the economy of the United States or are you talking about the economy of the world? And the reason that's important is you talked about people are key to what the economy does. Essentially, are we only talking about the American people right now? Are we talking about the people of the world in relation to the global economy? And the reason I ask that is I would say the people of the world are probably a little more eager than the people of the United States to get rid of the fiat dollar. Yes, yes. Well, it, you're right. I mean, different people in different political and economic circumstances will have their different views on this. And obviously, places like Venezuela are casting about for anything much more uh, drastically and dramatically than people in the United States right now. But uh, you're right to point out the distinctions because the the economy and economics are just such... Uh, I mean, such such loaded and bagged, bagged uh, phrases with so much baggage right now that it's difficult to even know what that does mean. I, sh I should, if I was speaking carefully, would say catalaxy and catalactics rather than economy and economics. And the idea being that our language has been so perverted that economy it comes from the old Greek term about household management, which is the 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 analogy the metaphor upon which our conception of the economy is based it's like managing a household and so the u.s government manages the u.s economy which is this household as it were that they manage and it's something that has to be ordered towards a certain end that is the wrong 
fundamentally wrong way of looking at it. It's the wrong metaphor that gets us thinking in the wrong direction. Because there is not a single household with a single leader that's going towards a single goal. It's millions or hundreds of millions, or in the global situation, billions of people that are all going about their own business and seeking their own ends and going and trying to find the best way through 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 life. And there is no single system for everyone. There is no single way that they should all be going and some single person who can oversee all of that. And because we have been tricked into thinking of economy and economics, instead of Cadillacy and catalactics and free free exchange between free people, we start thinking the wrong way, we start using the wrong terms, we start complicating things that do not need to be complicated. When I was speaking about the economy there, I was talking about interactions and transactions between free human beings. And that we don't have a convenient word for that, which is interesting because that is ultimately what what this is all about, what, it is, what uh, any monetary system should be aiming towards, just greasing the, the skids for people to interact and transact with each other. Well, that's an interesting theory, but it seems to me what the monetary system is really interested in is robbing people. I mean, if we're going to put up a new world order and a new system and new money or new currencies, cryptocurrencies, whatever, does that mean that everybody's going to get a fair shake or does it mean that some people are going to enjoy an enormous advantage and that the others are going to be impoverished? Yes. Well, if uh, if status quo continues and if uh, people don't understand what's happening, then yes, they will be fleeced as they are in every generation, no matter what technology is behind it. If people understand what is happening and take control of that, I think there is a way to steer it in a direction that's beneficial for humanity. But it's always about the understanding, whether people know what's happening and how, what they should be doing and why they should be doing it. And uh, that's it's one hell of a long road to walk. I agree. And it's going to be a, not only a hell of a long walk to, road to walk, it'll be a big job just repairing the potholes in that road mm. because... There's lots of them. Yep. We're out of time, James. Thank you for being on the program. It's James Corbett from thecorbettreport.com. Um, look forward to talking to you in a couple of weeks. We're out of time. Thanks for listening, folks. And uh, be back tomorrow. In the meantime, the good Lord bless you, me, Melody, Todd, the producer, and James Corbett. Bye-bye. I work all night. I work all day to pay the bills.